everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of 80s All Over. This is our bonus episode here on Patreon. As always, thank you guys for supporting the show. Your contributions are really the only thing keeping the lights on at this point. Uh, we continue to be a completely independent podcast, and as a result, we can just mix things up, try different things uh, all the time. And one of the weirdest things we're going to try is today. I had an idea recently. Um, I got to reconnect not long ago with a friend of mine from childhood who I had not seen in many years. And uh, he was my buddy during the time that we're talking about, uh, especially right now on the podcast, the early 80s. And uh, I thought it'd be great to have him on, talk about the early 80s movie experience and share some memories. So please welcome Bill Roseman. Hello, friends. Bill, how you doing, man? It's amazing and remarkable how after uh, many years, we were able to reconnect and see how our uh, shared passions have steered us in our careers, in our lives, and uh, uh, connected the dots of fate, if you will, and have led us here to this day. Well, it's funny because I always thought of you as the comic book guy in the neighborhood, and I was I was sort of the movie nerd in the neighborhood. And you turned me on to comics nonstop. There was stuff that, like recently when the New Mutants trailer premiered, I had to reach out to you because that was the book that you used to kind of get me back into comics. And to see that they're actually doing that era of New Mutants as a movie We've come a long way from what the movies were like uh, when we were kids and what comic books and movies in terms of that crossover was like as a kid. Exactly. And 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 I guess to give the listeners a little context, uh, you're right. I, I always describe it the same way as we were a bit yin and yang. You know, you were uh, my friend who loved movies the most. And I was probably your friend who loved comics the most. And yet we both had a shared love as well for what the other loved. And, you know, I was, of, of course, a big movie fan and 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 uh but i guess comics you know steered my life and you grew to you know you you love comics as well but movies really steered your life as we've grown up and pursued our careers that's what's what's led us and now can you describe your job because i i'm fascinated by where you've ended up because i think it literally couldn't be a more perfect job for you so here's the crazy story so uh out of college i had no plan other than i'm gonna work in comic books uh, and so I left school. I went to uh, University of Notre Dame, um, which is a liberal arts school, but not known um, uh, primarily for the arts. It's more of a, a, a school that leads people into uh, medicine or law or business. Um, but uh, I was an English major because that was my ultimate goal. I, I want to make comics. I either write them or edit them or create them. And so I went out to New York City with stars in my eyes. And uh, I was lucky enough that I knew a student who knew someone who worked at Marvel. And and so while I was working in publishing and PR in New York, uh, on the side, I was writing articles for Marvel, for their Marvel Age magazine, a magazine that I used to read when I was younger. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to uh, be recommended to uh, apply for a staff job. And suddenly I was writing the Marvel Comics sales catalog. Again, it was something that I used to read and did that for a while. And so I was lucky enough to have a run at Marvel for almost nine years uh, through the marketing department. Um, and at the same time, I was writing comics uh, freelance, um, and I wanted to get into editing. But at the time, um, this was the early 90s when Marvel was going through their downsizing and their bankruptcy. And so I stayed in marketing because all my friends in editorial were getting let go. Uh, so I had that run at Marvel for a while, and I even invented a persona called Your Man at Marvel. And I was a secret reporter inside Marvel, and I was writing blogs for Marvel. And uh, I didn't want people 
I, I, I wanted to embrace the idea of a of a uh, persona, um, almost like a uh, superhero identity, and did that for a while, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, and then went and actually worked for the Distinguished Competition, DC Comics, up the street, and worked for them. And that's when I got some editorial experience. And then about 13 years ago, uh, I was invited uh, by um, my friend Joe Casada, who was the editor-in-chief at Marvel, to come back to Marvel. I uh, went back and I was a full editor and edited comics for a good 10-year run and was lucky enough to be asked to edit the Cosmic books and I launched a book called Nova and then I decided that I wanted to do a team book and I put together uh, characters like Star-Lord and Drax and Gamora and Rocket Raccoon and Groot and took the old name Guardians of the Galaxy and brought that back and was happy to see Marvel Studios get excited about that and make a movie out of that comic that we did for a few years. And then uh, three years ago uh, they reformed the Marvel Video Games division, which is just called Marvel Games, out in California. Uh, and so I uh, brought my family cross-country to Los Angeles, and now I am the creative director uh, of Marvel Games um, uh, for the last three years. And we've been uh, setting up um, some big games, and uh, we uh, have announced the uh, Spider-Man, Marvel's Spider-Man, uh, the uh, exclusive game for Sony PlayStation. And we've announced um, an Avengers project that we're working um, with Eidos on. And uh, we've recently released uh, Lego Marvel Super Heroes 2 and Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite. And, uh, and my old comic book, The Guardians of the Galaxy, that then became a movie, has now become a video game. Uh, that's Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, the Telltale series. Uh, so long story short, uh, had a dream of making comics, got to make them. And now I get to make games that are based on comics. And my job in Marvel Games is just to make sure that all of our games are as authentic as possible so that it's the right. See, I, and I love that. I love the idea that your job is to make sure that when I'm playing a game and the boys and I got uh, Lego Marvel 2 and have been playing it and uh, there's 50 million characters. It's unbelievable how many unlocks there are. But. The idea is that you're the guy making sure that those characters are the characters. And I love that. I love that that guardianship has been put in your hands and that they are so accurate in the game and so much fun because of that. And and it's it's my and I feel like I did when we were young, just talking about cool characters and looking through the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and turning a page and saying, oh, Ursa Major. He's a werebear. He's a, he's a, <laughs> he'd be cool in the game. The answer is yes. Yes, he would be cool. Uh, and that's my job. I get to put werebears and ducks and uh, raccoons uh, into all of our games. And it's a joy. It's, um, and it's an exciting moment. Like watching the crossover, uh, this is stuff that we dreamed of. Like, and to see, now these characters so accurately portrayed i mean just this week just to have a moment where we're looking at the infinity war trailer forget about right. the last 10 years of movies just taken as a set of images there are things in that trailer that if you told 13 year old you and me that you would see one day we'd just laugh and go no way never that'll never happen you'll never see captain america as nomad in front of a wakanda army racing toward like that's never going to happen on a movie screen and, so, and i I think that's a tribute to what you said is we now have a generation of people who are making content 
Um, whether that is games, comics, TV, film, it's us. So it's 13-year-old us. We are now grown up. Um, and by luck and opportunity and sheer grit, we have somehow got to the positions where we are. We have, I think, this whole generation really took to heart the Marvel mantra of, with great power, there must come great responsibility. And so for me personally, I think back to when we were younger and said, man, I wish when they made these films or TV shows, they were just true to the comics. Mm -hmm. Just look at the comics and make that. And it always was curious to me why they didn't try and do that. I think some of it has to do with budgets and technology and special effects. Um, but also I think it comes down to love. I wonder if people making things in the past um, uh, grew up with them like we did. Who knows? But I, I think that's a very fair point because I the relationship that, say, Josh Boone has with New Mutants, when he gets that shot to make that film, you know, he's got stuff that's been rattling around in him for 20 years because right. of when he read those books and what they did to him and specifically the Sienkiewicz art, which uh, if you grew up on that, if you were touched by that in the 80s, that probably, like for me, I know that that influenced what I look at in fantasy art and horror art in general as uh, sort of the gold standard. I really love his work, and it has resonated with me for decades. And to, to see a filmmaker clearly carrying the same thing around inside of him, that gets very exciting. And, you know, I remember watching the Incredible Hulk series week to week, and dude, we settled because it was the Incredible Hulk and it was on TV and okay, at least that's happening. <laughs> and I, I will say, um, yeah, there was a mix, not to say it was all bad. I mean, I loved that Incredible Hulk show and what they got so right was the core of the character. They really boiled it down. And I was having the same discussion uh, with a friend at, at, at another game studio. Um, he was just doing some research and reading some stuff, and he told me he had just um, stumbled upon a run of the Hulk written by a uh, writer named Bruce Jones, and it was drawn, drawn by John Romita Jr., and this was a run from maybe about 10 years ago, and he was saying how cool it was. It was about you know Bruce Banner on the road um, at trying to lay low uh, and being hunted and then having to turn into the Hulk, um, and I said, and he was saying how great it was. I said, yeah, they based it right on the TV show. And he was like, oh, right. And what they got so right uh, and correct in the TV show is they made it very accessible and relatable. And they remembered that what makes Marvel characters different from uh, all other superheroes from any other uh, company is how relatable they are. Um, when Stan Lee started out, he, uh, he and Steve Ditko uh, and John Romita Sr. and John Buscema, their goal was to put this human in the superhuman, you know, and by that, I mean, they started with, well, who is this person before they get their powers and how do we make them fully three-dimensional, which was something new at the time. Uh, superheroes were not that they were, they were um, two-dimensional. They were perfect. They had no powers. Uh, a lot of the uh, heroes at the time, you never even knew who they were out of their costume. You just wanted to see them in costume. And then in the sixties, when Marvel came along and standing them, they said, let's, let's approach them as, humans with faults and they're not perfect and they have weaknesses. Um, and so that made us that we could relate to them and they have problems. Um, and that was revolutionary at the time. 
Um, and now we just kind of take it for granted. But at, when they did that in the 60s, it was like the Beatles coming to America. Uh, it was a jolt to the system. And so with that TV show, they boiled it down to here is a man who is accused of a crime he did not commit. And he's being hounded. And he just wants to be left alone and maybe even clear his name at the same time. And that's a story that many people can relate to or identify with. And then when you add the extra Marvel layer of, oh, yeah, when he gets angry, he turns into a 800-pound rage beast. Yes. And turns green. <laughs> and that's when children of all ages say, that's cool. Um, and that's the beauty of Marvel. You start with the, the, the coolness, the... Uh, yeah, the image that we saw in, in Infinity War, you see Captain America run with Wakandan troops. Uh, you see all these fantastic visuals and you start by saying, that's awesome. That has my attention. And then as you dive into it and spend time with it and get deeper into it and you see the layers and the complexities of the characters, then it grows with you and stays with you. And that's how Marvel differentiates itself from all other storytelling. Well, I... I when I look back at I remember the summer that Superman two came out and I remember seeing it several times. And at the, at that point, Superman two was, we had never seen anything like that. And that final fight between Zod and Superman in times square was amazing back then. And you look at it now and it's very slow motion and they just kind of gently lob things at one another. Because, <laughs> and it's, it's a fairly small scale battle, all things considered. But at the um, time, at the time, as you said, I mean, those first two Superman movies. Uh, oh, I, like I, lightning bolts. Yeah, I hold close to my heart. You know, the first one, as I said, was, you know, a perfect origin story. And and and, and the and the the headline uh, uh, that they gave with the movie was perfect. You will believe a man can fly. Mm -hmm. And that was the first step at the time. Like, wow, I look at this and the and the special effects have finally gotten to a point where we don't see wires. And we do believe that he can fly. Uh, and add on to that, the, the beautiful portrayal uh, uh, by Christopher Reeves that made you fall in love not only with Superman, but with Clark Kent. And, of course, uh, the portrayal uh, of Lois Lane. It was, a, it was a beautiful thing in that first movie. And then they stepped it up with the second one. Uh, you know, it was a very kind of uh, gentle development. The first one was very, you know, it was a very gentle movie, the first Superman movie. And then the second one gets a bit darker. It's almost like going from Star Wars to Empire. Yeah. And at that point, you're right, that was the most realistic and serious depiction of a comic book superhuman fight. Uh, and to see them honestly embrace this idea of what would it be like with people with immense powers fighting each other in the middle of a city? And what would that mean for the civilians around them? Um, and for us to see that at that time, we were like, yes, they get it. They get yeah. it. They're doing their best to treat it. Um, even though it's very, uh, there was some camp to it and, and humor, they were still trying to make it very dramatic and make sure things had stakes. It's interesting and that I, I look, I look now and we're, we're, when we talk about Marvel's history now, we're talking about, you know, 50 years of comic book history. But when we were kids, it was still all of these things. I didn't realize at the time how relatively new Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and that version of Captain America. I didn't realize that that all of that really had only started about a decade before we got into comics. Right, right. We were so lucky. We were, man, we were so lucky. It was it, when you think back to the 80s and you wonder why people are still we're still obsessed with it and still talking about it. It was such an amazing concentration of 
talent um, uh, plus a multiplication of uh, just genre entries. You know, a lot of the sci-fi and the fantasy were finally exploding. Yeah. And we're getting so many versions of it. Well, the B movie became the A movie. And when you look at the 50s and the 60s, everything that Harryhausen did or George Powell or any of those guys was it was a B movie and it was always treated as a B movie. And in the 80s, because of guys like Spielberg and Lucas, suddenly those were the A movies. Those were the big events. Right, and like it was the same stuff. They just did it bigger and better. And so suddenly it was treated bigger and better. And to be a child at that point and to be given that childhood. I, I think was a real gift for us because of what it did to our imaginations and because of how it pushed us. I feel like our kids are getting that as well. They're getting a childhood that is really extraordinary in terms of what they're being given as raw material to chew on and digest and then live with. Yeah. It's, as you said, we were so, you know, in the eighties, just, just with comic books, as you said earlier, um, you know, Spider-Man and uh, the returning cap and and then the explosion of all the Marvel characters happening at once: Hulk, uh, Thor, Iron Man, the X Men, uh, the Fantastic Four, Ant Man, Doctor Strange. All that happening only, you know, like 15 years ago. Really, when you think of the mid 60s, is when it all erupted. And here we are, 15 years later. Uh, and then it's a, uh, and so those characters are still forming. That's relatively young for these characters. And then you have a second wave of the Ghost Riders and the Punishers uh, and characters like that in the 80s and 90s. Um, so think about it now. You have, when you talk about our kids, they have this um, layers of decades of characters and stories. And as you said, the B. Uh, movies and B stories suddenly becoming the A stories and A movies because um, fans like us have grown up and now have the ability to create the content. Uh, so that came to pass in the 80s and it's coming into pass now. You have all the fans that were us in the 80s now getting the opportunity to get this content. And you're right. If you were, if you ask any long term comic fan to say, hey, you know, you're going to make a new mutant movie, what are you going to make? And everyone's going to say, oh, I'm going to do the Demon Bear story uh, by Claremont and Sienkiewicz because that's the best stuff. Um, and so our kids are now uh, getting to see all these decades worth of content at their fingertips yeah. um, because everything's been digitized. And it's crazy that they can just, um, you know, turn on the TV or go online uh, and, and have access to all these decades worth of content. Uh, and unlike us where we had to, uh, hunt these things down and we had such limited exposure to content and we were only able to see movies uh, for a time at the theater and then we were able to see them uh, at home I remember you and I had like three different uh, VHS tapes that we just <laughs> rotated uh, that we would watch each day we would pick one uh, <laughs> and it was just a summer of you know are we going to watch Spinal Tap or Weird Science or Back to the Future Oh, so great. It really uh, was. And to and to have those. And that was that's a thing that I don't think kids will. There are things that are specific to the age that you digested media. In our case, it was the VHS tape with the six set at six hour speed where you had recorded three movies back to back to back. And that combination would always be. I remember like I got 
The Road Warrior was on one tape. Yes. And then Raiders of the Lost Ark was right after it. Oh. And to just have that one-two punch and to, to realize you'd watch all the way through, you just rewind at the beginning, just go back through on the loop. And we digested movies in that way. And then when, once we got mobile, once we got old enough to be mobile and get to theaters to see stuff, there was the era of sneaking into movies because we weren't quite old enough. And that was always terrifying. Do you remember Nightmare on Elm Street and how how scary the theater was because nobody was in it? We went during the day and we were terrified the ushers were going to catch us in there. So not only was the movie scary, but every time the door would open, we'd get really nervous and we'd be tense anyway. It was like oh. an episode. It was like an episode of Stranger Things. <laughs> you know, when I, it's so funny, I'm watching Stranger Things and I turn to my wife and I say to her, this exact scenario, these events didn't happen to me, but my childhood felt like this. Exactly. The bikes, we were because bikes were everything. And we I always were- remember, you know, one of my, one of my favorite childhood memories is Brandy. Not just because Brandy was the dog of dogs, but because as a three-legged dog, Brady was super dog. <laughs> yes, he was, uh, for the listeners who, who don't, of course, know the story, so Brandy was my golden retriever, and one day he uh, succeeded in reaching a car he had chased, which was bad news, yeah. uh, and he got hit by the car, uh, but luckily it didn't kill him, but it, it hurt the nerve in his leg, so um, we had to amputate his front right leg, uh, and so then he had three legs, but... Um, because it was a front leg, a lot of dogs can lose one of their front legs, but still get around uh, 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 quite well. He kind of hopped around, but he, yeah, he was he was like us. He was a freaking geek of the dog world, uh, and so and he, he fit right into our gang. And even that feels like a detail from an '80s movie, though. It feels like something from the Goonies so that yeah. one of the kids would have the three-legged golden retriever. And of course, of it course. was. Uh, and it, it really, to, to me, to, to watch now people fetishizing that 80s existence, you know, the things that they get right were the freedom that we had because we basically, as long as we were in our neighborhood, which was a gigantic neighborhood, it was technically okay, and, yeah. which is and we insane. Had, and we, <laughs> we did just, just you know, we were allowed to just, uh, yeah, go, go outside and we're told, don't come back until it's dark. And we had... And, <laughs> That was it. And we had no cell phones. You know, people, we were just, and, but, you know, I think it maybe helped with our maturity. We were trusted to not, to not uh, really betray rules too much. Yeah. We had responsible, we had to stay within the neighborhood. Um, and it taught us, in a way, it began to teach us limits. So that I think when we grew up, we were mature and we were able to continue to set limits for ourselves because we, we, kind of tested ourselves when we were younger. And when you think about that, yeah, we were just told, go out, don't come back until it's dark. And well, we had that, that also, up. I think, led to led to uh, us having, uh, there are things that I think of as just adventures where during the day you just go do something. And I remember there was, um, and some of these are, are movie specific. Like I remember Romancing the Stone was something that we weren't necessarily setting out to see one day, but you had the OLP at your school had the fair that day. Yes. And so the, I and the- I won tickets to see a movie at a local theater. And so instead of working at the fair, we just split and walked like a mile and a half and went to the movie <laughs> theater to watch Romancing the Stone. Yeah. So my my uh, yeah, my grammar school is called OLPH. It was a Catholic school, Our Lady of Perpetual Help. And we, yeah, we 
had this school fair. And I remember down the street, as you said, almost a mile down the street was a little kind of strip mall. And they had a theater there in the corner. That's where I saw Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I remember my mom dropped me off with a date. I think I had a date at that time. She dropped wow. me off. We, we had, we had the, wood paneled, the wood paneled station wagon. She dropped me off to see a, a Temple of Doom there. And yeah, you and I, we were working the the, the fair and we, you, you won the tickets. And Romancing the Stone, we were like, huh, it has the word romance in the title. I don't know. But it looked like Indiana Jones. Right, right. It was, it was one of those maybe... And that was one of those great surprises where we had no real reason to be hyped about that movie and came out at the end like, what just happened? Holy awesome. cow, that was awesome. Welcome to Cartagena. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and that was, when you think about it, I mean, back to the, the title of your show here, the, the, the amazing explosion of great content, what we consider great content, yeah. where so-called lowbrow was suddenly becoming mainstream. And when you think of the back-to-back movies, just movies, not even the TV shows, just the films, uh, uh, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Empire Strikes Back, E.T., Poltergeist, Goonies, uh, Romancing the Stone, Terminator. War I mean, oh, my God. How many times, and I, I've talked about this before, and maybe even on the show, how many times did we see the Terminator in the theater? So I, I was explaining this to friends, and I say... I had a friend named Chris. Remember Chris? He was the tall guy with blonde, curly hair. He lived down uh, in kind of the new area that was developing in our neighborhood, that they were kind of expanding our neighborhood. And he lived down that street. And his dad uh, owned a Burger King brand. And as I recall, we had this sort of uh, uh, under-the-table agreement of exchanging fries and burgers with the guy who worked at the movie theater. He would supply him with fries and burgers. And in exchange, which I think is a legal and, and correct and equal exchange of services. It's and barter. Food. It's barter. And the barter system works. Barter. Uh, and so in exchange for the food, we would get access to view films. And so that allowed us to every weekend go and see the Terminator for as long as it ran. (laughs) (laughs) And it would be one other movie and the Terminator. And it was just, and we're going to end with the Terminator because it's still playing. So we're going to go again. When you think about it and you look back at the Terminator, what a intelligent, uh, well-structured film that was what I think is a great example of science fiction. Um, And I always say, you know, if you're truly going to use the medium uh, or I guess the genre of science fiction, you must use it to comment on yeah. something so yeah. that you are attracted uh, as a viewer just to, oh, here's Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's a robot. OK, boom, I'm sold. But then when you really study the film, as I actually did in college and to see how they use the idea of um, technology to comment upon our world and to speak about, uh, when you think about the film, all the times that technology is very threatening, um, from little scenes of you cut and there is these big construction vehicles that are really loud. Uh-huh. And then, then you cut and there's a scene where uh, Terminator comes to the apartment to get Sarah Connor um, and her roommate doesn't hear Terminator beating up her boyfriend because she's got the hair dryer going so loud. Yep. 
And so technology becomes this negative thing. And all through the movie, uh, it's just showing how technology can be dangerous, leading to the ultimate example of Skynet and the Terminator himself. And I just thought, thought that's a great example of using um, the genre to really speak to something that's going on in our lives today. And I don't know if we understood any of that when we saw it. No, uh, and what amazes me is what it taught me about independent filmmaking, because the Terminator is such a tiny movie where they had such limited resources. And the older I've gotten, the more I look at the Terminator and really marvel at the fact that it's held together by scotch tape and James Cameron's tears. Mm. And God bless him. Like, it's amazing. And, and it's it, a real education. And at its heart, there's a beautiful love story. Yep. You know, yeah. here's someone I've come back to. I've come back in time, Sarah Connor, for you. Oh, his and, speech to her is it's one of those great. It's it's a great moment. And it's Michael Bean's best moment as an actor ever because he had the right thing to play and he knew exactly how to play it. You talked about that one theater uh, where. OK, so growing up in the 80s, you had not quite the same sort of omnipresent theater placement that there is now. It feels now like there's a multiplex every 75 feet. And if you want to see a movie on opening weekend, you'll find that movie on opening weekend and you'll find a ticket for it in Chattanooga, especially there was the one mall, the big mall that had been there the longest. And they had two little theaters there. Then yes, they opened was, a twoplex across the street from that. I think. Right. There was, yeah, it was all, it was all based upon, as you said, the mall structure, there was, they were all called gates. There was Northgate, I think, and Eastgate and right. Southgate were the three malls. Right. And okay. We would, I remember I would get the Sunday paper, the Chattanooga Times Free Press, yep. and I would get the entertainment section, and I would open it up and I would just spend an hour turning the big pages and looking at all the movie posters that were in the newspaper. Because again, I always have to tell, it's funny, even talking to um, newer members of my staff, I will say, you know, you know, when I was a, a tween and a teen, we had three channels on the TV screen. And I would, sometimes I'll tell my wife, like, oh, Golden Girls. I loved Golden Girls. And she would say, why did you watch a TV show about four old women? Number one, it was awesome. But number two, there were three channels. So you yep. had to pick was the best at the time. So uh, yeah, as you said, our, our entertainment was limited. You had to seek it out. There was three channels. There were two to three theaters. You know, there was no blockbuster video. Uh, there were limited bookstores. There was a Walden Books and maybe a B. Dalton. We had one comic shop that I didn't discover until later when I was older in high school. On rare occasions, your mom would take us to Atlanta. Yes. And, and Linux Square, I have one of my favorite movie memories was seeing A Christmas Story at Linux oh. Square and seeing the Ghostbusters teaser trailer before it. So to set the stage for our listeners, so Chattanooga is about two hours north of Atlanta. Yeah. So my mom, we came from the East Coast. So I moved to uh, the South really at a perfect age, right when I was about 10. And so... I very much felt like an outsider. Uh, uh, I did not grow up in the South. And then I think when I found you, I found a kindred spirit and that we were both into the same things and we bonded over that. And then I think you and I were sort of navigating our way through 
growing up and being where we were and figuring out who we were and in each other, we found someone who was not embarrassed uh, in what they loved. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think at the time, um, the culture we found was a very kind of sports-driven, outdoorsy culture, and we were very much indoor kids. <laughs> very, very, <laughs> much, very much so. Much to my dad's uh, eternal horror, but yes. Yeah. My dad wanted me to go hunting, and my brother wanted me to play football, and I eventually did, you know, play sports, but I believed, I kind of believed in, you know, can't you have both? Can't you have a sound mind in a sound body? You know, I wanted to be athletic and fit like a lot of the heroes you know i looked at superheroes and i looked at indiana jones uh and and i think we all loved indiana jones because he was the first kind of action star who was smart and he was fit but he wasn't huge like an arnold schwarzenegger he was fit and smart and i think that's part of the reasons why we loved indiana jones yeah Uh, and so i think you and i together were navigating our way and also um, introducing each other to things we might not have known before. And so, as you said earlier in our talk, I was showing you, hey, man, check out this run on New Mutants. Check out this crazy art by Bill Sienkiewicz. I don't quite understand it, but I know it's cool. And so it was a magical time of us seeking out uh, and and finding, like I said, going through the newspaper and just seeing a movie poster and saying, what is this? Yeah. Romance the Stone. It says romance. But it's got Michael Douglas swinging on on a rope, and he kind of looks like Indiana Jones. So maybe we should go see that. Maybe uh, that'll work. And think about how limited our knowledge was. There was no internet. There was, you know, the only entertainment shows were there was Entertainment Tonight, with which very little spoilers. There was just a, a, a limited amount of information out there. You would walk into a film just really knowing. The poster, who is the actor, and for nerds like us, we began to notice who the directors were. The directors, that was a big thing. And I think think part of that, you did that a lot in comics. You would turn me on to a writer or an artist. And I know my love of Bill Mantlo, the very first thing I ever tried to write in screenplay format was an adaptation of his Cloak and Dagger miniseries. Uh, and it was and I just uh, I loved yes. Mantlo. I thought he had a real handle on a certain tone that Marvel did, which was sort of the street level melodrama. And I think that there was something about the way he wrote it that really appealed to me. And I wouldn't have noticed that except that you kind of connected those dots for me with writers like in, in comics. And I think in film, I latched onto directors very early and then got very excited about them and would follow them movie to movie at that point. And as you get older, as we did, going into our tween and teen years, we started paying attention to the fine print. We started looking at the credits, and we began to realize that these things we love don't just fall from the sky. They're made by people, and there are specific uh, positions uh, on each creative team that do a certain thing. And we begin to do our homework, and for me, in comic books, it was studying the credits box and seeing who the writers were and the artists and even the editors and beginning to see a pattern and beginning to recognize uh, writers and their voice and what they're good at and recognizing artists and realizing, oh, John Byrne, I love how he draws everyone. And here's George Perez and here's Walt Simonson and Art Adams and et cetera, et cetera. And then I think, and, and I think that was what I did in comics. And at the same time, Drew, you with 
the films would notice who's the director, who's the cinematographer, who is in charge of the special effects and the costume, uh, costuming and the makeup, and began to point those, those things out to me. Uh, and I, in turn, were showing to you, here, uh, I, follow, I've, I followed this writer from, from this company to this company and this book to this book. And we began to follow, the, we began you, to change, not following just characters, but following creators. Well, it's funny. You just mentioned Art Adams. And I, I literally remember the first time you brought a cover that he had drawn out. And you were like, this kid is on fire. This kid is <laughs> crazy. Look at this. Just look. Like, he blew your mind. Your first exposure to him just blew your mind. And I loved that feeling when you're that age is a constant sense of your mind getting blown. And I'm watching it happen right now with Toshi as he's watching movies and as he's discovering filmmakers and as he's realizing what it is he likes or doesn't like, or, you know, there was a long time where he was afraid of horror. And now that he's starting to embrace horror films, suddenly he's really turned on by watching somebody do it well and watching something that's really crazy scary because he loves the magic trick of it. Suddenly watching that perception, like watching as he gets more excited about how somebody tells stories as opposed to just the story itself. I think that's a real sea change that happens for you. And for a lot of people, it never does. And it doesn't have to because you just like the story is the story. I think it is that if it happens, it's because you have a deeper connection to it and you want to take it apart and digest it and figure it out. And, you know, I loved when we had the free run of like that theater where we would go you were talking about the uh, the kid that would let us in and then just on Friday and Saturdays we would just run around and see movies. And like I remember the night that Dune in 2010 opened. Yeah. And just just to go do both of those movies in an evening to listen to crowds in 2010 sound baffled and to listen to people leave Dune in droves because they didn't understand what was happening. Um, and it just to sit in both of those theaters, watch those back to back. And then the next night, go see the Terminator again as the palate cleanser. Holy <laughs> shit. That's unbelievable that we were able to do that. And I, maybe I was one of the uh, 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 odd people who actually kind of loved that Dune movie. Yeah. Maybe. Well, I remember, I remember when they handed us the glossary sheet at the box <laughs> office, we went, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, I mean, I, I had not read the novel at the time. And so I think, you know, just going in fresh, I knew who Sting was because I loved the police. So yep. I was excited to see Sting in a film. And of course, I was excited just to see any science fiction movie. I was just in. I think I just appreciated the ballsiness and the craziness of it. Just the setting of it's almost like, oh, this is like Star Wars, but it's all set on Tatooine. It's just this entire desert world. I think I just appreciated the world building, of course, that they were trying to take from the novels of the Freeman and the Spice. Um, yep. I loved the costuming, and I forget who it was who did the costuming. I think it was... Um, it's Ringwood, Bob Ringwood. And, Bob Ringwood. Uh, and you're right. It, the costuming that is incredible. That Toto score is such, a, such an 80s score. And it that was, was a decade where people would take big gambles on scores. And you would be like, all right, well, I guess we're going to have Tangerine Dream do this. And... <laughs> Boy, when it worked, it really worked. And to see, as you said, two, like here's two films uh, that are in the same genre. Technically. But so totally different. <laughs> Dune, yeah, Dune yeah. to Terminator. So completely different. But man, I think it also comes down to when you were a certain age. That's when things are imprinted into your brain. And you often have 
uh, more uh, either positive or negative reactions to something. They are magnified in your brain. And you might go back now and see something and you're like, why did I like this? This is terrible. But at the time, it was fantastic. And you loved it. And so again, I think uh, it happens to many people. They have this, um, through the lens of nostalgia, they look back upon things when they were a certain age and they were magical. And I think for us, it was a time when our brains were changing and we were just getting intelligent enough to understand things. And even though things still baffled us, they were opening new doors and new yeah. possibilities to us. And so they stayed, they stayed to this day. And I can think back and, and, and because comic books uh, and movies are visual to begin with, of course, visuals imprint themselves uh, onto your brain much quicker and longer lasting than just words or print. Uh, so um, a lot of the movies of the 80s had fantastic visuals and were really pushing what was possible with technology uh, uh, and special effects at the time. And uh, yeah, it was just a magical time when we could go to a theater and run from theater to theater uh, and have such a an amazing run of great content. Well, I, we just did we just did the June 1982 episode. And, you know, it's one thing to, to say that the summer of 82 was an incredible summer, but to actually look at weekend by weekend what was coming out and to realize we had E.T. one weekend and then the hmm. following weekend, Blade Runner and The Thing came out the same weekend. Really? Yeah. We were that lucky. We were getting yeah. indulged that much. And. I, at the time, you know, you you just take it as well. This is what movies are, and they're gonna. Dude, it was it was an incredible era to be a child in, and I and, what, and I, th yeah, was, it, was was Poltergeist around? Yeah, Poltergeist was that same month. I remember there was one summer. My mom would always go to visit um, her sisters and her mom in Jersey, and so you know, my dad was like, "What are we gonna do? Let's go to the movies." And I remember it felt like, and maybe it wasn't this way, but it felt like one weekend we saw Poltergeist, and the next weekend we saw E.T. Yeah, you did. That's insane. Amazing. And then the following weekend was The Thing and Blade Runner. It's insane. One of the reasons that we started doing the show in the first place, and we're going month by month through the 80s, and every episode is just one month, and we talk about all the films that came out that month. And I'm going back and I'm rewatching everything, and I'm really trying to look at it without that, that lens of nostalgia that we're talking about. And what I'm finding interesting is the decade is so much more then even living through it, you realize there mm -hmm. was so much going on. And yeah, I had my focus. I had the stuff that I was totally tuned into. You know, that same era was when my parents uh, invested in that video store. And so we were getting those boxes of videotapes in and processing them. And, you know, there there was that era where suddenly home video entered the picture. Yeah, and we could start start going through older things. And I would watch anything that had an R. Because I would figure, well, it's about it's grown up stuff, so we'll see what it is. An eleven year old trying to make sense of an unmarried woman when nobody's home, and you're just watching it because it's rated R, and you hope it's going to have boobs in it. I process some weird films some weird ways, and it's and again, I I think that the '80s was that first moment where we even had home video and we even had access to yeah. the larger body of film work and. The way we took it in, nobody, there was no guide. There was nobody to say, well, this is you know what's good. This is what's bad. It was just anything that was an older film, I would pretty much take a chance on. And, and I, I, I don't think our kids are like that now. Yeah, so we, well, I mean, I think in a way, I'll say this. I think they are in that there are current movies that are coming out that they can see. 
uh, and then through the magic of Netflix uh, or Hulu or what have you, uh, they can do what we did, go back and start making connections and watching things. So we had, you know, at the theater, we have all the movies in the 80s coming out. Then with the rise of videotapes, we're then able to either see other uh, recent movies that we just weren't able to, to get access to or suddenly discover the 70s. And we have everything by Scorsese and Coppola uh, uh, and the beginning of, uh, of uh, Lucas's run and Spielberg's run and going back and watching, oh, here's American Graffiti and seeing their early works. And so to have these seminal movies of the 80s and of the 70s at our fingertips, talk about two amazing eras of film all happening at once. So you multiply that now by what our kids can do they can see what's happening now and then go back and for them, you know, there's things from the nineties and that's really, you know, uh, fun for them. And you talk about Toshi uh, making connections and going deep into horror. So my boy Petey is doing something similar. So we are, uh, I've been reading him to him each night about 10 pages of Harry Potter. And so nice. we're now, we just finished year five, which was the order of the Phoenix. And last night we just began, uh, Half-Blood Prince, which is book six. And so nice. what happens in the mornings, he'll wake up and he'll, um, we have purchased uh, the the movies digitally. And what he'll do is he'll watch all the trailers and then he'll click on lists of the actors. And he starts investigating who the actors are. And then he'll start investigating, maybe it's through Netflix or whatnot, what other films they have been in. And he's starting to do what we did to connect dots to see where what what work other directors or what other actors um, what other work they've done, and so he's beginning to kind of peel back layers and connect dots and use that's cool. We did use talent to introduce themselves to other content they wouldn't have known about. So now it's no longer about Harry Potter the character. Now it's trying to find out what the actors have done before. I think that's really cool. I. I am excited to hand off my media library to my kids because my media library, the digital library that I have now, it's comic books, it's books, it's music, it's uh, so magazines. You, I'm, I'm curious because I'm trying to figure it out myself and like, OK, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for Petey to be about 10 before I start showing himself other things. I'm, we're very um, careful right now what we show him. Um, we don't want to yeah. throw him the deep end too soon but i think right about when he's about 10 or 11 that's when your brain starts developing your personality starts developing and you're able to handle things and so i'm i'm preparing for this in a couple years yep. and i'm trying to come up with my plan of attack like am i going to introduce things to him chronologically or am i going to do it by genre i think you you take sort of a scattershot approach at first you introduce a a, a spectrum of things and you watch what really excites them. And then you start to follow threads with them. And I, you know, because I, I certainly made a few errors. Uh, one of the reasons that Toshi came late to horror was because he saw um, Twilight Zone, the movie, too young. Uh-huh. And, never made, and never made it past the first eight minutes. Mm-hmm. Just that scene in the car between Albert Brooks and uh, Dan Aykroyd. As soon as Dan Aykroyd turns around and says, you want to see something really scary? That <laughs> happened. Toshi stood up 
tears shot sideways out of his eyes and he went, I will watch this another time and left the room and never came back. So that was years uh, uh, of inappropriate uh, timing on my part. And it took him a long time to even want to be scared again in a movie theater. And I think that, you know, that was something that I, I made the mistake. I watched how he responded. And so we went the other direction and it was really more about the, the heroic stuff and the, exciting stuff and that's what he got more interested in and, and you know i think it's okay i think i think it's um part of it is you have to let the kids find their way and in a way uh, i think when i think about fairy tales and we were we were discussing fairy tales when i was in college and there was a theory that fairy tales are used by adults almost like an inoculation uh, against real life and by that i mean when you look back on fairy tales and I'm not even talking about the original versions, even their sort of watered down versions. You know, they uh, contain, even though on the surface they're about monsters and adventure, uh, they contain themes of loss and betrayal and death. And these are the first times that kids are experiencing these concepts. Yeah. And there's a theory that uh, a fairy tale prepares them so that they can hear a fairy tale, be scared, be worried, process it. And then a few years older, when they're older, when they really start experiencing death, when their grandparents start dying, for example, they are prepared a bit for death. Um, and, and they are able then to um, uh, deal with it uh, and it not be the first time they're introduced to this concept. And in the same way, I think that pop culture, uh, especially for, for kids and teens to kind of go on their own journey and discover it for the first time, it prepares them uh, uh, for things later in life. Um, and, and it tests them and lets, lets kids test themselves. What do they like? What do they don't like? What can they handle? Um, what do they want to avoid? Uh, when you talk about horror, I have a funny memory of, this is the late 70s, my Uncle Jesse, my dad's bro crazy brother, Uncle Jesse, takes my brother and I, and I was, I must have been eight, maybe? He takes me to, <laughs> he takes me to see Alien. Yeah. Yeah, that's not oh, right. That's that 78, 79. Yeah, that was 79, dude. So, okay, so I, was, I was eight years old. I was not yet nine. I turned nine in December. So he takes me to see Alien. I'm excited because it's called Alien and there's spaceships and I love Star Wars and I'm all in. And the moment when the alien pops out of the chest, I, he always tells me I scrunched down to the floor and I looked back up to him. I was cowering on the floor, and I look back up at him with my wide, teary eyes, and I just say, Uncle Jesse, <laughs> like, why? Why did you do this? Why did you expose <laughs> me? What? what was it about uncles? What was it about uncle? My uncle is the one that took me to see The Exorcist. I was, I was seven. I was still doing altar duty at seven. I didn't know what was happening. I thought it was a documentary. Absolutely was not right for me at that point. Yeah. They don't they because they don't have the responsibility. They're they're the cool uncle. They can come <laughs> in and they can they can get revenge on their brothers and sisters. They can just expose their kids to this stuff, and then at the end of the night, say, "Okay, enjoy enjoy your nightmares." <laughs> right oh, is, that, is that what that was? Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't realize I was being used passive aggressively, but okay. <laughs> we, were, we were just we were just tools in this ongoing war. I but, see. But what that taught me is it exposed me to this. And he and my brother pulled me up and said, ah, come on, Billy, stay and watch this. And I did. And I ended up loving it. And it tested my limits. And it, and it seared that moment in my mind and kind of got me used to 
you know, what do I like? What do I don't like? And what is, uh, uh, and, and, um, and I think it's good. I think it's good for kids, um, to be shocked, to test their limits. It, it forms who they are as people. And it's done in a very safe way. Um, in, in that, you know, it's like theater. They talk about catharsis and they talk about Shakespeare and that it allows people to gather and, um, experience something, whether it's violent or whether it's emotional, um, it takes them out of their ordinary life, their law-abiding life. It exposes them to something that is law-breaking. It allows them to experience it uh, in a very safe way. And then afterwards, you're released to your normal life. And I think we do the same thing. You know, this past month, my wife and I have been burning through Breaking Bad. And, uh, you know, we've been watching it uh, on Netflix. And, you know, we find out that we enjoy shows that expose ourselves to a portion of life that we would never experience. You know, here we are in our very law-abiding lives and doing the right thing, and we're parents, and and we're good citizens, and 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 here I am every day trying to do uh, the best I can for my company and and be a good good person. Uh, but then through entertainment, we are allowed to see the dark side, to see places that we would never go, that we would never do. And here I get to experience this life of this family man who's trying to do the right thing, but doing it through very illegal means through creating drugs. And that is a fascinating uh, uh, slippery slope uh, and path to go down. And so I guess long story short is through entertainment, through films, we are able to see the dark side and experience things uh, and then go about our daily lives and having that safe uh, experience with something that's dangerous. Uh, And again, I think for, for us, for that age, it allowed us to see concepts and situations in a very safe way because they were on the screen and we were safely sitting in our seats. I want to thank you for, for doing this this morning, uh, Bill. And it really is. It's a pleasure to, uh, <laughs> to chat with somebody who was there, who was actually in the trenches with me. And yeah, I love drew talking to you and to others like us who um, at one point in our lives, maybe felt alone, maybe felt like outsiders And then we found other people like us and we found content that spoke to us and we embraced it and respected it. And now here we are years later and now it's our turn. It's our responsibility to create this content for the next generation so that the kids that are like us can find each other and then find this content and find their place in the world. Well, we're buying a PlayStation because you're a Spider-Man game, dude. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Uh, seriously, Spider-Man games have always been great, and that one looks so crazy. So, Just talk very quickly about it. So we're making it with uh, the this, this studio called Insomniac, and they're luckily 10 minutes away from uh, the Marvel Games uh, studio. So we were there uh, every week and talking to them every day. And uh, again, uh, this is a case of what we talked about today is this is fans now growing up and getting in the position to create the content. And we're all crazy Spider-Man fans. And we're like, this is our sacred duty. We cannot mess up. We have to make this the best Spider-Man game ever. It's our one shot. So it's fans making uh, uh, things for other fans. And that's Um, a high bar because Spider-Man games traditionally been pretty solid games. They've done a nice job of the web swinging, of giving the powers, the actual powers. Like, he's been pretty well treated in video games so far. We've been playing all the games and going back and looking and remembering what we liked and what we didn't like and remembering, oh, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Okay, they really nailed the web swinging there. How can we we raise the bar? So, uh, yeah, man, we are in it. We're looking at story. 
we're looking at gameplay, we're looking at um, everything, the UI, the music, um, how do we communicate, how do we deliver that fantasy of being Spider-Man, the wall crawling, the web swinging, um, and then marrying that with an awesome story, and then just uh, taking familiar characters and putting them in new positions. We're just going all out, and uh, uh, I hope everyone loves it, and there'll be much more news on it um, and, and footage shown uh, uh, you know, in the months to come. I look forward to you costing me lots and lots of money in the years to come, Bill. It'll be worth it. All right. Well, buddy, thank you so much. Guys, you got the rundown on the things you can go pick up that Bill's worked on. Uh, I just I want to thank you for taking the time this morning and uh, go hang out with your kids. And uh, we will talk soon, my friend. Thank <laughs> you.